Turn in your Bibles to Psalms 138. So when we when we see miracles in the Bible, you know, we look at the Bible and people tend to look at the Bible and say, well, God was just working in the Bible, you know, um, and God works in people's lives, but maybe we don't see it in our own life or maybe we don't see that miracle or we don't expect that big miracle like the parting of the Red Sea or the uh, or the walking on the water or things like that. But when you look back in history, and if you look back at history with an honest eye and through the lens of the Bible, and what I mean by that is when you look at the people that worship God, and we're going to look at a group today, and we're, we're going to be back in the Bible after that, but when you look at a people that worship God and had God in their life and put God first in their life, and you look back through the lens of that on history and you see the trials that they went through and you see the troubles and all of that, but through all of that, you see God's providence in their life. And I, I see that and when I look back at history at different events, I see it and this is, I never thought this would be a controversial topic, but I see it with Israel when it was founded in 1948 and they were attacked on three sides and and throughout that history in the 20th century, every time they were attacked, they not only won, but they gained equipment and they gained territory. And then at the end of every engagement where they gained territory, the rest of the world is crying for them to give it back. And uh, I just, but I see that through God's lens. I read back, I, I looked at Alan Allenby, uh, World War I, Alan Allenby entering into Jerusalem. And uh, before that time, no one had any concept of Israel ever actually making it into the promised land, except for Bible believers, people that believe the Bible that said one day God's going to bring his people back into the promised land. Because up until that time, it was a battle between the Catholic Crusaders and the Muslims and the Moors. And Jerusalem was fought over back and forth, back and forth until 1917 when, uh, and when you look at those battles that took place, the charge of the light brigade and different battles like that that took place down in Turkey, and you just see God's hand on all of that. And uh, I remember reading about one engagement, and uh, this isn't what it's about, but I'm just showing you some things I saw in history. I remember reading about one engagement where... Um, the horses were charging artillery. I think it was the Australian Light Brigade, if I'm not mistaken. I could be wrong on that. But they were, they were charging the Turkish army. There, there weren't very many of them. And they were going up against a massive army. And they, they, they just went in bravery and in trust. And, and when they rode in, it happened that they got in so quick they couldn't adjust the artillery enough. They ended up taking a massive armory with just those, that cavalry. And you saw it in different things like that. You just see God's hand throughout history. And uh, one of the places that we really see God's hand is in the beginning of this country when the pilgrims came over. And that's what I want to talk to you a little bit about today before we get started. But when you look back at history with that eye, it's not, 
you realize that God just doesn't work in the Bible. That the Bible isn't the only place that God worked. That the, the time for God working in your life, that, that's not something, you're, you're reading history and you say, well, like the sermon last week, where is the God of our fathers who performed the miracles? Remember with Gideon? When he's looking back in the book of Judges, he said, where is the God of our fathers? But when you look back in history and you see those different things, the Yom Kippur, the Six-Day War, they were attacked on Yom Kippur uh, by three different sides, the Egyptian army, the Syrian army, and I forget the other one. But they were attacked on three different sides in Israel, and they, they were able to push them back, not only push them back, but they had to give back land after that battle. That's where they, I think that's where they gained the Gaza. But we go all the way back to the pilgrims, and we hear the story. We hear the story of first Thanksgiving, and we hear the story that, well, he, if it wouldn't have been for the Indians, it wouldn't have, wouldn't have lived, you know, things wouldn't have happened. Um, the fact is, when you look back in history, there's two different colonies that you can compare that first started out. You have the colony of Jamestown, and that was a horror show, at least from my perspective, when you look at it, the starvation, the battle with the Indians and how they barely survived and stuff. Now, they had starvation and they had people die with the pilgrims, but what you saw throughout all of that was them turning to God and giving God the glory and starting everything based on God And uh, from the time that they landed ashore. But I just want to kind of read you a little account here. And... Uh, the following account of the pilgrims' first thanksgiving demonstrates how much they had to thank God for as a celebration of God's preserving grace. And this is kind of compiled from different accounts, but just for time's sake. A small group of English separatist Christians waited to board their ship, the Speedwell. They had lived in Holland for 12 years and were longing to taste freedom. The whole reason that the pilgrims were coming over here was because they were looking for a place to be able to worship God freely. Because <clears throat> King James in England, he was persecuting them. When they moved to Holland, they began to see their kids begin to blend in with the people around them and, and, and leave the Bible. So they, they wanted a place where they could worship God freely. And so... Uh, small group of English separatist Christians waited to board their ship to Speedwell. They had lived in Holland for 12 years and were longing to taste freedom. They set out for the new world to spread the gospel, preserve their own language and culture, and bringing up their children according to the dictates of their own conscience. Now, they had a lot more people that were going to come over here, but you, you saw God kind of whittle them down, kind of like with Gideon, where many stayed behind. And had they gone, they probably would have been more of a burden than a help. But God began to, to weed them out, just as he did Gideon's army. And by the time they came across, there was about 100 pilgrims, I think, that had come across. Um, they set out for the new world to spread the gospel, preserve their own language and culture, and bring up their children according to the dictates of their own consciences. The voyagers loaded food and cargo onto the speedwell. William Brewster brought along his printing press and almost 200 books, all for the purpose because they knew there was going to be preaching when they got there. On July 22, 1620, with a fair wind, the pilgrims knelt and prayed for God's blessing. They set sail for England where they would join the Mayflower. Both ships sailed for the New World on August 5, 1620. 
Within three days, the speedwell began taking on water and twice had to turn back. All the pilgrims had to board the Mayflower, and they got, they got compacted down into that one ship, and it wasn't an easy ride. It was, it was dirty. People didn't get to shower. They all had to stay in the same place, you know, in the same hold, and they had to make do. When there were storms, they, they, couldn't, they couldn't go on deck. They couldn't get fresh air. They couldn't get away from it, but they had a purpose. They... They were suffering through this for the goal of being able to serve God and the goal to be free to serve God. I'll say it. My mind can't help it, but, you know, I thought, yeah, and some, and some of us have trouble getting up on Sunday morning. <laughs> Amen. So, uh, yeah, let the Baptist out of me. So both ships sailed for the New World, August 5th, 1620, uh, taking on water. Finally, the Mayflower set sail a month behind schedule with 102 passengers. With travel provisions already consumed, supplies would last only two months more, but they had sold their houses and could not turn back. So what had happened is the ship had to wait in the harbor, and for the time it had waited there, they had begun to, they had to live off the provisions that were for the trip over. The problem was that the other provisions that they ended up living off of when they made the trip over were provisions that were going to feed them when they got to the new world. So they, they get there kind of empty-handed. And you see this time and again over in the new world. In Jamestown, people would come. They didn't have food. They hadn't brought anything. They just added to the burden when they got to Jamestown. So they weren't a relief. They were more of a burden. But with the Mayflower... They faced not only shortages, but harassment from some of the sailors. One self-appointed leader jeered at the Christian seasickness and boasted that he would soon sew them all into shrouds. Ironically, within hours, he himself died of a strange fever. His was the first shrouded body to go overboard, and the mocking ceased. <coughs> Halfway across the Atlantic, the Mayflower encountered a violent storm that snapped the crossbeam supporting the mainmast. The situation was desperate until someone remembered the great iron screw of Elder Brewster's printing press. Placing the press beneath the beam, they raised it back to its proper position, and it held for the rest of the voyage. By now, their food was almost inedible. The bread was rock hard, the grain bug infested, and there was no fresh water. But on November 9th, the pilgrims heard the cry, Land ho, and tears of, tears of relief mingled with shouts of joy and prayers of thanks. Captain Christopher Jones informed them that they had reached Cape Cod, far north of where their patent entitled them to settle. Now remember, when you go over to the New World, you had an obligation to, to support or to send back support to the ones that had sent you there. It was an investment into a colony, and that colony would send back the supplies to the other side of the sea. But when they got there, they had... They had landed too far north, up around Cape Cod. And they tried to sail back, because they wanted to do right, but they tried to sail back down to where they were supposed to land, which was close to Jamestown. I don't remember exactly where it was. But they tried to sail down, but because they were close to shore, the winds and the currents, they were fighting against that, and it was going to be too hard, and it was getting close to wintertime. 
So they end up, and you see God's hand here, and you'll see it here in a minute, but they're trying to go down and do right, but they get pushed back, and it's like, well, we got to go back here. So they go back to Cape Cod, and they give up on that trip because they would have had to go further out to sea and take even more time, and wintertime was approaching. Uh, they attempted to go further south, but were turned back by the rough shore. They would have had to go back to sea to get around it, but winter was too close to permit any more searching. As they had begun their long voyage by kneeling on the dock at Delfshaven to ask God's guidance, so they ended it kneeling in gratitude on the sands of Cape Cod. They didn't forget the God who delivered them. They didn't get to shore, and, you know, a lot of times God delivers us, we just walk on and we forget to thank him. And that's one of the things this week is for. It's a time to set aside, to remember, to thank God for the things that he's done in our life. And I bet if you look back on your own life, you'll see times when you were denied what your wishes were, but you'll see God's hand in it. Providentially, they found land already cleared at Plymouth. It seemed as as if unseen friends had prepared this very spot, but the summer growing season was over and a bitter wind would follow. And from another book, I got this more detail. After exploring the area, they discovered a cleared field, a huge kettle, some Indian graves, and the dilapidated remains of a house. After noticing some suspicious-looking heaps of sand, Standish, as Miles Standish, had, had his men do some digging. To their delighted surprise, several Indian baskets full of corn were unearthed. They agreed to take the corn only after making a solemn pledge to repay at the earliest opportunity. The importance of this discovery being made only days before the same ground would have been frozen and covered by a blanket of snow cannot be underestimated. You see God's hand in this, because when you landed on shore, you had to do some clearing. You had to set things up. <coughs> now, the, there were other things that aren't listed here, but one of them was that the captain that they had, he wasn't just after profit. But because the winter was coming, he, he stayed there with them. He ended up losing his wife and 10 sailors, but he stayed there with them so that they would have a place to stay in. And you just see God working all throughout this. In spite of all that happened, all of the bad things that happened, it tells us, like Romans 8, 28, and I'll probably end up reading this again, but like Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good to them that love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. By April 1621, the pilgrims had lost 28 of their original 48 male adults and 47 people in all. But in God's mercy, an Indian named Samoset, who had learned to speak English from fishing captains, walked into their camp. He had a remarkable story to tell the pilgrims. And this is better when you know more and more detail, but here comes an Indian walking into the camp, as it's described in, the, in Bradford's diary, and he just... He just walks up there, standing upright, and the first words they hear from him, and it just shocks them. He says, welcome. And they end up talking to him. And he, he ends up telling them that that land that had been cleared, it belonged to a hostile Indian tribe, the one hostile Indian tribe in the area. They would kill every white man they saw. But a plague had gone through that that village through that tribe and had decimated them. The Patoks, I can't pronounce it. 
but had decimated that tribe. And all of that was left. And there was that corn buried in the ground and all of that just prepared ahead of time. And you see God's providence. And, and not only that, but you, you see that hand, that providence that when you think about all of the things that came out of that, you know, we've, we've learned about the pilgrims all through, but we've only learned bits and pieces. But them surviving and all of the things that took place in the founding of this country, there was a seed that was planted there on that shore. Whereas had they been down in Jamestown or down in that area, they would have been starving with the rest of them and attacked by the Indians. Now, they, there was starvation, and Bradford he, uh, ended up losing his wife. And uh, there were other people that lost their wives, but he lost his, his own wife, James Bradford. Uh, so, <coughs> he had a remarkable story to pel- tell the pilgrims. According to Samoset, that area used to belong to a large hostile tribe that killed every white man who landed there. But four years before, mysterious plague had devastated the entire tribe. Convinced that some great spirit was responsible, neighboring tribes had shunned the entire area. And that gave them peace. In October of 1621, Governor William Bradford declared a day day of public thanksgiving. The pilgrims furnished turnips, cabbages, carrots, onions, parsnips, cucumbers, radishes, and beets from their gardens for the feast. And 90 Indians joined them with venison and wild turkeys. In another book, it talked about how the Indians, uh, they, they had, that wasn't another book, that was a set of lessons we listened to. But the in, they had taught them not only how to fish, but they taught them how to harvest the fish. Not just catch one fish, but to catch many fish. They taught, you know, taught them how to feed themselves. In exchange, they had brought dried fruits and stuff like that, and then the Pilgrims introduced them to blueberry pie from their dried fruits and things like that. So, um, Elder Brewster led in prayer to God, whose providence had guided and protected them. We have noted these things, said Bradford, so that you might see their worth and not negligently lose what your fathers have obtained with so much hardship. So that's a brief story of the pilgrims, but when you read that story, and even years ago, I had uh, rented a documentary on Netflix. And I, I love it. You watch a, a secular documentary. It's not even trying to promote God or anything. It's just telling you of what happened. And uh, when you watch it through that lens of how God works, and you see how God works with his people, you see how battles bring people to, to God. You see how just a little bit of cloud cover in a battle, just a, 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 a little noise by night. You see Gideon going to the camp and hearing, you know, about the barley bread tumbling in and taking everybody out. He said, this is nothing but the, the sword of the Lord and Gideon come to destroy us all. You know, just these little things throughout the Bible. You see them in history, too. So I wanted to share that with you guys this morning. We see the Bible's filled with thanksgiving from songs of praising God for his deliverance. There's one in Exodus 15. When they came on the other side, they, said, they sang a song. Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Thou stretchest out thy right hand, the earth swallowed them. 
Thou in thy mercy hast led forth thou peop- the people which thou hast redeemed. Thou hast guided them in thy strength unto thy holy habitation. The people shall hear and be afraid. Sorrow shall take hold on the inhabitants of Palestina. The dukes of Edom shall be amazed, and the mighty men of Moab, trembling, shall take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan shall melt away. Fear and dread shall fall upon them. By the greatness of thine arm, they shall be still as stone, as still as a stone, till thy people pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over which thou hast purchased. Thou shalt bring them in and plant them in the mountain of thine inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which thou hast made for thee to dwell in. In the sanctuary, O Lord, which thy hands have established, the Lord shall reign forever and ever. So song is a praise, and we see Noah, when he got off the ark, we see him raising up an altar to God and offering thanks to God. And it should be that in our own life. If we want to see all things work together for good, we've got to remember that part of the verse that says, to them that love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And... uh there's many passages of thanks in the Bible, and I just want to look at this one briefly here, one, Psalm 138. And I know it's dangerous for a preacher to say briefly, but we'll see how we do here. Let's look at this, Psalm 138. I mean, it's only eight verses, right? How long can that go? Don't get nervous. I will praise thee with my whole heart. Before the gods will I sing praise unto thee. I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. In the day when I cried, thou answerest me and strengthenest me with strength in my soul. All the kings of the earth shall praise thee, O Lord, when they hear the words of thy mouth. Yea, they shall sing in the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. Though the Lord be high, yet hath he respect unto the lowly, but the proud he knoweth afar off. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, thou wilt revive me. Thou shalt stretch forth mine hand against the wrath of mine enemies, and thy right hand shall save me. The Lord will perfect that which concerneth me. Thy mercy, O Lord, endureth forever. Forsake not the works of thine own hands. So when we look at verse number one, he says, I will praise thee with my whole heart before the gods will I sing praise unto thee. Number one, I want to point out the the depth of the thanksgiving. So we see here, I will praise thee with my whole heart. It's a total commitment. Notice the total commitment. Notice the total commitment to our holy God. He says, our whole heart. Jesus summarized the Ten Commandments in Mark chapter 12. You you can go there or not, but in Mark chapter 12, verse 28, and I'm going to read some of this. And one of the scribes came and having heard them reasoning together and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, the first of all commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Verse 30, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, with all thy mind and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. When you first read that and you say, well, there's 10 commandments, isn't there? When you go back into the law, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt have no other gods before me, no images. And uh, but Jesus was able to summarize all of those 10 commandments into two things. 
And uh, I heard a preacher kind of promoting a series, and he said, love God and love others. I couldn't shake that. I, I don't like catchy things all the time. But he said, love God and love others. And that really sums up those two commandments that Jesus gave. We're to love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. With, every, with all of our being, we're to love God. And if you love God with all of that, with all of your being, then you won't have other gods before him. You won't worship images. And, and you can go through the commandments and you can see you won't. Just as Joseph, when, when uh, Potiphar's wife had tempted him, he said, I can't do this great sin against God. And because in your heart, you don't want to sin against God. You've put him first in your life. We saw that in the pilgrims' lives, that God was first in their life, even to the point of leading them off into a strange land. Because that wilderness, there was no telling what was in there. They had no idea what they were walking into, but they trusted God because they wanted to worship him and they had prayed and God had laid on their heart to go there. And we know now it was for the good. Because of their influence, we have the freedoms that we used to have here. I know that's tricky. But uh, we have the freedoms that we have today. So uh, he said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And not to leave it out, this is, the second is like, namely, namely this. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you won't mess with his wife. You won't mess with his property. You won't steal. You won't deceive. You won't lie. If you, if you love others, if you love God, you won't sin against God. If you love others, you won't sin against them. And when you look at the Ten Commandments, they, they all fit within these two commandments, and that's what Jesus was showing. The commandments, when they're listed out, you can say, well, I haven't done this one, I haven't done that one, I haven't done this one. But when you get down to those two commandments, putting God first, and he says, he says in verse 1, I will praise thee with my whole heart before the gods will I sing praise unto thee. And here he is, he's praising before gods. He's, he's, he's showing the other gods that his God is God. Just as Elijah up on the Mount Carmel, uh, Mount Horeb, was it? Mount Carmel? Mount Carmel. Elijah up on Mount Carmel when he built the altar to God and the fire came down from heaven. Y'all know the story. It's one of my favorite sermons. But uh, you, when you love God, he comes first before everything. So it's a total commitment of the heart. And just to finish it out, uh, verse 32, And the scribe said unto him, Well, Master, thou hast said, for there is one God, and there is none other but he. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love his neighbor as himself is more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered discreetly, he said unto him, Thou art not far from the kingdom of God, and no man after that durst ask him any question. So he, the, the man said, these are more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. People can offer money to the church. People can offer gifts. They can, offer, they can sacrifice their time. They can sacrifice to themselves. But do you love God? Is he at the top of your list?
Next, we see in verse number two, he says, I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth, for thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. We see the direction of the thanksgiving. In the Old Testament, they worshiped toward the holy temple because that's where God dwelt in the holy of holies. When Solomon built that temple, you could see God's glory come down after he prayed and filled that temple. So when they prayed to God, they looked toward the temple. When, when Jonah was in the belly of the well, he turned his face toward God's tabernacle, I think it was. But he turned his face toward God. But in the New Testament, in the church age, we have God in our heart. We are the temple of the Holy Ghost. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, What, know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own? That's why Jesus was taking us from the external law to the internal of the heart. Over in Matthew chapter number 5, and it's, it's one of my favorite, but he says, uh, it, it, You have heard it been said, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I tell you, whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her, committed adultery in his heart already. He's talking about the Pharisees. The Pharisees had the outside of the cup clean. They had the, the outside clean, but on the inside, they didn't care what was on the inside. They could think whatever they wanted as long as everybody else saw that whited sepulcher. You know what the sepulcher is? You go down to Galveston, you see the tombs out there, the mausoleum, you see one. It's all beautiful stone. Some, some are marble, maybe not down in Galveston, but you, some mausoleums are are marble or they're whited or they're well taken care of. They got statues and they're pretty on the outside, but inside is a dead man. And that's what he was pointing out. And he was showing that on the inside is where you're clean, not the outside. What comes out of the heart, that's what defiles a man. <clears throat> but he said... Uh, I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. Turning your hearts toward God. Many people think that their relationship with God will be a relationship with the church. But until you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you won't have a relationship with God no matter where you go. And it's the old... Old preacher saying, you can sit in a stable, you won't become a horse. You can sit in a garage, you won't become a car. You can sit in a church, it won't make you a Christian. It's that relationship. But people always skew it. And they say, well, I don't need to go to church because it's a matter of the heart. And it's like, no, he set up the church too. It's the whole counsel of God. We're a fellowship. We get to gather around God's word just as we did this in Sunday school and as we're doing here. Because... I had <laughs> I've thought about this before. It's like one hour a week, maybe two hours, you get to talk to people. I thought about it in the terms of kids. You get maybe two hours on Sunday to preach, to teach the Bible. But if that's all that they get, if they never pick up the Bible the rest of the week, think of how many hours, and I should have it added up and memorized, right? But how many hours throughout the rest of the week does the world have us? Does the world have you? Does the world have the kids? So don't rule out church, but church isn't what makes you a Christian. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ, our Lord. He died on the cross for a reason, not so that you could see him in some statue or so that you could cross yourself in front of him. 
but so that you could place your trust in him and have eternal life. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Take a look at John 3, 18. Whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but shall not come into condemnation, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. If I got that right. So, we don't have a holy temple to turn toward because we have a holy person that lives in the heart of every believer. Thy loving kindness, God forgave us before we even turned to him. Romans 5, 8 says, but God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Even while we were dirty sinners, Christ died on the cross knowing the sins that you were going to commit, but he died so that you would have a way to get to heaven, so that you would have a relationship with God. Truth, for thy truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And he said, for thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. And here's what he gave us in his word. All put together, all packaged up for you. Some people even make it easier to read, I guess, but I, I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> but we have God's word that's been preserved down through the ages and put together. Imagine how many people tried to burn this book. Imagine how many people tried to take this book off the table, yet it persisted. And you see God in history, and here's God in history right here. When you read the story of the Bible, they chased William Tyndale, I think it was. They chased him all over the countryside. One of them, they were so mad at him, they dug up his bones and, and burned them and excommunicated him after he died because he was propagating God's word in a language that you could read. Through all of that, through all of those ages, through all of that, those trials and suffering that took place, we see God's hand of providence through all of that. It's something to be grateful for. The fact that you can go into a store and buy one, the fact that you can order one online, I think there'll be a time when you won't be able to. Thy loving kindness, God forgave us. Um, and then there's the day of thanksgiving. So we have the direction of thanksgiving, and then there's the day of thanksgiving. Psalm 138, verse 3. In the day when I cried, thou answerest me and strengthenest me with strength in my soul. David remembers that it was God who gave strength where he had fell. And there's times in our lives that you can look back and know when God was there and know when God answered. Sometimes it's just a handful of purpose. Sometimes it's not the answer to your prayer. It's not the solution to everything, but something will happen and God will tell you, you will know that that was at just the right moment that God was speaking to you. I well, this is personal, I guess, but I remember one time being out of work and, uh, I was in my house that I was about to lose, my, my trailer here in Texas, you call it. We call it a home in Georgia. But I was, I was there on my knees, and, you know, I'm about to lose everything, and I was looking for work, but I, I'm there on my knees, and I'm praying. I said, God, I just need to hear from you. <laughs> and then the phone rang. I mean, right after I prayed. And now I'm not getting weird on you. But I'm just saying there's those handfuls of purpose. And I answered the phone, and it was a fellow from Minnesota that had seen my resume online. 
I'm glad I didn't move there. But it, it was kind of like God saying, you know, here I am. I'm still here. It's just a little handful of purpose. That might not mean a lot to you, but to me, being alone in that trailer and in the tears and asking God, I just need to hear a word from you. And, and for that, that phone to ring right at that moment, that touched me right at that spot. It doesn't mean that everything's got to happen like that, but God gives those handfuls of purpose. And you remember back to those in the day when I cried out. You remember that day. And then there's the devotion. He said, I cried, thou answerest me and strengthenest me with strength of my soul. All right, and then there's the devotion of thanksgiving. He says, all the kings of the earth shall praise thee, O Lord, when they hear the words of thy mouth. Yea, they shall sing in the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. Though the Lord be high, yet he hath respect unto the lowly, but the proud he knoweth afar off. There's no place, no one or no place that can ignore the opportunity to praise God's holy name. I get a picture in my head, I don't share it a lot, but I get a picture in my head sometimes when I hear somebody talk saying, there's no God. That they don't believe in God and that they, they, there is no God. To me, in my mind's eye, it's like sitting on a railroad track when you're deaf. And you just can't feel the tracks vibrate. You can say there is no train. You can sit there and say there is no train. There is no train. There'll never be a train here. You know, there's a certain uh, train track in Georgia, a bridge, that people know. Many people have gotten caught on that bridge. It's known for taking people out. But they'll still get on there because the trains run so random. But you can not believe there's a God. You can say there is no God. The Bible says the fool has said in his heart there is no God. You can say there is no God. The Bible will say the foolish uh, professing themselves, they, they I should have known that one better, but professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. They'll say there is no God. They deny God, but they, they come up with all kinds of weird things to follow. Anything but following God. All of the kings, the Bible says, one day every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We see that judgment day over in Revelation chapter 20. We see all the, the small, the dead, the great, all standing before God on the day of judgment. And they'll be judged out of the, book, out of the works in the book. Not by their side. They'll be, <laughs> they'll be judged by their works, and every one of them will fail the test because there's none righteous now. No, not one. So there's the devotion of thanksgiving, and then there's the determination of thanksgiving. In verse number seven, he says, Though I walk in the midst of trouble, thou wilt revive me. Thou shalt stretch forth thine hand against the wrath of mine enemies, and thy right hand shall save me. I told you the story of the pilgrims, how four years before, this was the one tribe in the area that would kill every white man they saw. But God ended up through his, whatever you want to think, God and through his divine judgment or, you know, why would I hesitate? Because so many people get offended by it, right? But when you read in the Bible, he says their, their cup is not yet full. He, he allows things to go on for a certain period of time, and then he deals judgment on them for that, right? But this tribe, for whatever reason, in God's own divine judgment, uh, uh, they had all died of disease, and they had cleared that land. 
And that corn that they brought up and they said, we're going to pay it back as soon as we can. A lot of people have good intentions. I believe they were going to keep that. We're going to pay it back as soon as we can. And then they find out from Samoset that, well, that was a tribe that four years ago they died. And actually all this land that's been cleared and these fields that are ready for planting this next spring, all this doesn't belong to anybody. And not only that, but because they all looked at it as some spirit had done that, and a spirit had done that, God. But they, they looked at all of that and they said, we're staying out of that area. That's cursed ground. We're not to go there. So they, they had free reign there. Catch up here. The determination. He said, though I walk in the midst of trouble, thou wilt revive me. Thou shalt stretch forth thine hand against the wrath of mine enemies. Though I walk in the midst of trouble. You see the trials that the pilgrims went through as they were coming across. You see the troubles. I mean, bring in a printing press. It's like, why would you? I mean, it seemed like some hoes and some axes and things like that would be a priority. And I know they brought those. But to bring a printing press, because they wanted to be able to share God's word, because they wanted to be able to print it. And that printing press ends up being their salvation out on the sea. Who knows if that would have given out and sunk the ship before they got there. Just those little things. And there was God. All around us is trouble, and yet God is still here. Protection and grace is before me continually. And then, hang on before I say it. Finally, there's the dedication of thanksgiving. In verse number 8, The Lord will perfect that which concerneth me. Thy mercy, O Lord, endureth forever. Forsake not the work of thine hands. The dedication, and notice where that dedication comes from. It doesn't come from you because you're going to fall out on God at one time or another. Your faith is going to fail. But notice where it comes from. He says, the Lord will perfect that which concerneth me. Thy mercy, O Lord, endureth forever. Forsake not the work of thine own hands. It's God that's making the dedication. And God's dedicated to working all things together for good to them that love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, there's a whole lesson behind that called according to his purpose. I won't go into that now, but if you're to be called to God, you need to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. Those become the elect, the ones who accept Jesus Christ. And it's a whole other discussion. But if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you're just attending church just to, to know God, you have to know it's a relationship. You say, well, those people, they don't, they don't follow God, this and that. But are you following God? That's great. You can be in a whole church full of sinners, but the question is, are you following God? You can be in a whole community that doesn't follow God, but the question is, are you the one following God? I had a moment not too long ago. And this is where I get a little personal. You start to run dry. And you got to give out every Sunday. And you got to be ready with a message. And you got to feed people. And I, I was starting to think, man, I, you know, I just don't have a fellowship. Or I, I, now, there's people in this area I know. I get on the phone call with the Gideons and pray on Saturday. 
not every Saturday, but I hear those godly men praying, and they're all from different faiths and stuff, and I'm not for joining a bunch of churches together, but we have one God overall, and we'll gather in the name of Jesus, and if we were gathering in another name, I wouldn't have nothing to do with it. But I start to run spiritually dry, and I said, man, there's just, God needs to, I need you, God, to send somebody in my life. I need you to send somebody to help me out, to lift me up. And he's done that. But there's something else that I realized. I thought about Jacob in the wells, in the desert. Maybe I'll preach on that one day here. I thought about those wells in the desert. And when you get in the desert, you become dry. You become thirsty. There's not water everywhere. And God said, you're not by my well. And we're talking about your relationship with God. Are you by the well? Do you understand what I'm saying? When you look over in John chapter 4 and you see the woman at the well, she's, he said, if whosoever drinks the water that I shall give him shall never thirst again. He's talking about a spiritual drink. She says, Lord, evermore give me this water where I don't have to draw again. But as pastor, he, he said, they're, they're coming to the well but you hadn't been dipping your bucket. You understand what I'm saying? I see some confused looks. Maybe God will show you at some point. But if you're leading your family, if you want your grandchildren close to Christ, if you want your children close to Christ, and you keep saying, if they could just get around some people, if they could just do, are you dipping your bucket in the well? Are you taking from the supply that he's given you? Because you may be that source that God wants to put in their life or somebody else's life. That's just a thought to finish with. That's a little side thought. It's a personal relationship. You can say the church, you can say the people, but the real question comes down to Do you know him? Are you saved? Are you dipping from the well? Are you one of the called? For we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. And this week we go into thanksgiving and giving God thanks for the things that he's done in our life. All right, if you'll stand, please.